I'm Dan Schifrin. And I'm Kathy Joller. And we are the hosts of the podcast series, The Space Between, Dispatches from the Contemporary Jewish Museum. This program looks at how both art and the contemporary Jewish experience often takes place in the spaces in between cultures, religions, generations, and artistic practices. Today we are delighted to have Moshe Kasher, one of today's sharpest comedians, on the show. Kasher is the author of the hilarious and terrifying memoir, Kasher and the Rye, the true tale of a white boy from Oakland who became a drug addict, criminal, mental patient, and then turned 16. The book is a West Coast combination of Philip Roth's Portnoy's Complaint and Jim Carroll's The Basketball Diaries. Kasher was recently on Conan O'Brien, offering his thoughts on why it's bad PR for Jews to give their kids gold coins to eat for Hanukkah. Welcome, Moshe. Thank you. Thanks, guys, for having me. I like that intro. Although I've never read Portnoy's Complaint. I just like the uh, comparison. Yeah, that felt really great. nice. Yeah. So the book is both uh, tragic and, and very funny. Um, in, in writing the book, did you have to consciously kind of balance the amounts of each, or is it all one and the same for you? Uh, some laughter, some tears. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I've been thinking a lot about I set out to write this book as a comedy. I mean, that was my... I, I, I sort of thought that the, uh, the, the drug-addicted teenager... Uh, you know, horror story had been written already, and I thought, well, the difference here is that I'm a stand-up comic, and so I can bring some, I can inject some needed levity into the the topic of teenage drug addiction. Uh, it sounds absurd, but it is. It, it was my mission, and uh, I started writing it with comedy first, and then, um, you know, I found I've I've discovered things about it as I was writing it, and one of them, which was obviously that at certain points in the narrative, I had to st- it was stop being funny. And it needed to be serious. And uh, sincerity is not my um, uh, comfort zone in terms of a perform a performer and in terms of an artist. But uh, because comedy is the opposite of sincerity, so many unless you know every once in a while a comic will be like, no, that's why we need to help them kids. But um, generally frowned upon sincerity. Uh, but the narrative needed needed that needed it, and it happened to me. And I thought that was a neat process to watch a story happen to me, even my story happening to me, even as I was writing it. Um, but also I found that the jokes themselves are a kind of, uh, a literary, uh, uh, catnip, you know, it's like a distraction technique and is, and I didn't write this, uh, I didn't do it like this on purpose, but I think that what's effective about the book is that the jokes, which are unbelievably funny, I mean, I'm just a very talented comedian, yeah. um, distract you. Uh, that's sarcasm, by the way, for the <laughs> listeners. They distract you on your way down this kind of weird road. You start off in this very lively, funny, even though it's a little dark and twisted, it's still funny. And it's almost like there are these little, you know, glittery objects on the horizon. And then all of a sudden, you're looking at these jokes and you're laughing and you find yourself in the third and fourth act of the book going, oh, wait, how did I get here? Um, what a claustrophobic place I've arrived in. And you almost didn't notice you were arriving there because you were busy laughing. And I think that actually that's analogous to my own experience with drugs uh, is that the same thing happened. It was a distraction technique where I found drugs as a, at a very young age, which made me were very glittery and made me feel great. And then all of a sudden, by the third and fourth act of my childhood, I thought, uh-oh, I'm stuck. I'm trapped. My experience of reading the book was that something was really funny and I'm off guard and I'm kind of, I don't know, open and vulnerable in a way that you are also in the book. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get hit with something really serious and... Um, the humorous parts are more humorous because of the background of some of the, you know, horror. And the horrible things actually become more horrible because you're not expecting them. Um, so generally the humor makes it more horrible is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I like the sound of that. That's an even uh, better intro than a cross between <laughs> Philip Roth's Portnoy's complaint. <laughs> the horrible got only more horrible as we read on. Um, 
Well, there's I, also some sense that, right, if you're able to make these jokes, he turned out okay. He's going right. to be all right. Well, I heard somebody once say, anything that you laugh at, you'll never be ashamed of again. And I think there's a lot of power in that. And I think that's very true. Um, huh. So, you know, I think that there's some there's something to that. Um, and, you know, I as I wrote the book, my, my editor's first and primary note when I turned in my first draft was remove half of the jokes because it was just so front-loaded with jokes as a comedian I have this you know muscle memory of trying to just stuff joke and I don't know if you know my stand-up comedy style but it's like it's like a Gatling gun of jokes it's just one after another after another I don't even stop for people to laugh uh, and um, which hopefully theoretically they're doing um, and so I had to go back through and comb out unnecessary jokes and, and it was interesting because I didn't think of it and then I reread and I thought, oh, that does make sense. It, it, this does distract from the from the narrative. You know, I'm making these, you know, these jokes all the time, you know. And um, and so I had to go out and just comb the humor out of it. Huh. So the difference between a joke that was distracting and a joke that furthered the story, um, did that right. become apparent? It became some of the, I mean, you know, it depends. It remains to be seen uh, what the reader would say if all of the jokes in there were necessary. Uh, you know, obviously some of them are winking uh you know the the book i have my tongue in my in my cheek the whole time at, and you know i i break the fourth wall of the book um quite a bit i mean but so some you know some might say there's there's still some distracting jokes but i think that what made what what co- got combed out of it were some of the things that sort of just felt unnecessary felt like uh baubles on the on the christmas tree of this very jewish book most of the time what writers do is um they take out pretty language Stuff that kind of calls attention to itself. Oh yeah, and right. it's kind of the jokes are a corollary to that. In I think a way. that's right. Yeah, I think that's an, that's an interesting uh, uh, comparison because I'm not uh, I'm not a trained author. Um, I didn't. Uh, I you know I'm a junior high school dropout. I did go to college, uh, but I didn't. I, I, I didn't. I'm, I'm mostly self trained, and um, and so I don't have sort of narrative strategies and and linguistic kind of ideas that I wanted to get done but I think that's right I've always talked about stand-up comedy like uh, my friends and I've talked about it like it was our grad school what I did here in San Francisco uh, this is where I started uh, was in San Francisco and in Oakland was you know we spent our 20s in nightclubs and in bars and in you know uh, and you know comedy clubs and it was essentially the the equivalent the academic equivalent of graduate school for stand-up comedy and so that is something I'm adept at but um, I think that that's right that it can become a a crutch in a, in a way humor can become a thing that you lean on in the same way that sounding smart and sounding sounding you know pretty probably is similar for a MFA or something like that. And to all the MFAs out there that aren't published writers, I just want to say uh, you know shots fired. You know like uh, hey you know maybe you should try stand up. <laughs> um, I don't want to embarrass you. I I thought the book was brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, and one of the things that was interesting for me to note as I finished the book, which is that it. Um, it reads like a kind of like a religious narrative. It's kind of you start in hell and then you kind of work your way up to purgatory or heaven or something. Very and you talk you talk about heaven and hell in a lot of your stand up sure. as well. But I was I was just wondering whether that was self conscious in any way. For instance, the last chapter I believe in your book is called Exodus. Well, there's five parts. Uh, there's five segments in the book. It's Genesis, fun, fun with problems, just problems, and Exodus, and. Um, what can I say? I'm a Jew. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I don't know that I, I set out to, to make a, no, there's no religious allegory, but, um, but I think that it works in that way. And I think that, um, I, I'm intrigued that you got that out of it. I think that's pretty neat. 
Yeah. I mean, we were chatting just even in your descriptions of uh, drug experiences. I was like, the the ecstasy of it, it sounds like someone describing a religious experience. Well, it is, I think, a religious experience, right? I think that I think the drugs are, are, they literally are a religious experience for a lot of people. Ja Rastafari. Bo! Sorry. Um, does anybody even re- get that reference here on I, the I Contemporary Jewish Museum's podcast? I don't even know what just happened right now. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were burping. Uh, yeah, that's how uh, Rastafarians burp. Oh! But I, I, I think that it was a religious experience. I mean, you know, what is... What is a religious experience but, you know, tr- becoming a, a feeling of transcendence and oneness, uh, forgetting about the self and being pulled into a transcendent experience? And I think that I, I described that pretty clearly that when I first got high as a kid, uh, the main thr- – I mean, because, you know, to be frank, drugs feel good to everybody. I mean, though with some exceptions, but drugs are a thing that make you feel euphoria. But that's not the experience that I had the first time that I got high. What I felt was more than a euphoria. It was a uh, a, a a shedding of my painful uh, skin. It was a, 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 a molting into a new creation. And I think that's what's dangerous. That was I described in the book as, you know, if, if getting getting high feels good, sure it does. But if it's the first thing that's ever felt good, then you're in trouble. And I think that, um, yeah, there's a, there was a transcendence and a religious experience in that. But, of course, ideally, the difference between uh, the religious, uh, this can be argued, I guess, but the difference between the religious experience and the drug experience is that it's theoretically a spiritual experience is one that builds, builds you up and that over time you develop it and become more whole. And the drug experience can be quite the opposite. The first one, you feel this transcendence, and by the last one, there's nothing left but desperation. Hmm. I'm man, brother. <laughs> and I want to bless both of you <laughs> that you should never experience this desperation, but only the holiness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. <laughs> Amen. Uh, um, so um, you were here for the opening of our museum, our Jewish yeah. Museum, for our all-night party. Yeah, that called, was neat. Called Dawn. Um, Contemporary Jewish Museum. What are those three words connote to you? I'm blogging for something called Jewish, My Jewish Learning um, this week. Sure. You know them? Yeah. They must sure. be affiliates or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, the blog post that I, that I sent them today was in response to some of the compl- – I've, I've gotten a couple of complaints about my appearance on Conan from, you know, uptight Jews who are – you know, I, in the, I, I make fun of the Hasidim that I grew up with. And I grew up in a – my father, when, when my mother – left my father in the wake of the absence of his family. My father married into a Satmar Hasidic family and moved into a place called Seagate, which exists only in the past. And um, This is in Brooklyn. This is in Brooklyn, sort of, but it's also in you know Eastern Europe mm-hmm. in, in its own dimensional shifting way. Uh, and I said that the you know the I, I, you know, the joke is, on Conan is you know my father joined up of in the most odd of all the Hasidic Jewish groups. Uh, let me say that again so that you understand. Of all the fat Amish bearded Jewish penguins waddling around Williamsburg, <laughs> my dad joined up with the most outside the margins of society. This would be like being among the fattest of all Walmart shoppers. It's a very intense thing to be. And that's offensive how? I Well, that's what I wonder. It's like, well, I realize, you know, that, um, that anything you joke, it's so hilarious to me because anything you joke about, that demographic will take offense to. But then you can move on to the next 
sex joke and joke about a, a, a new demographic, and the old demographic is now silent. So I, in my uh, Conan set, I made fun of my deaf parents. My deaf parents, not some, not deafness. And then I made fun of my Satmar uh, upbringing. And I got emails from those two demographics. Mm. And I also have a joke about the Doors. I've gotten some very vitriolic mm. emails from Doors fans letting me know that I need to back off the sacred cow that is yeah. Jim Morrison. But um, to just clarify where I'm coming from Jewishly, I, uh, I studied religion in college. I, I, I've, li- I've lived in Israel. I studied Jewish history. That, I mean, I'm a, my, fa- my brother is a, is a rabbi. My whole family is Hasidim, like all, I mean, you know, literally like, you know, they're straight up. I have family that's third generation American that speaks with European accents. Mm. Like that's straight up true. Like old school. They are very old school. My family comes from, part of my family is in a place called New Square in New York. Are you familiar? Mm. Rockland County? I don't know what county it is, but I know what century it's from. (laughs) They don't, women don't drive in New Square and they don't. And they all voted for Hillary Clinton. Every member of the New Square community voted for Hillary Why? Clinton because the rabbi said. So that's the level of religiosity that we're dealing with, you know. <laughs> and um, if you – I love those people. And, I, and, you know, whenever I see a Hasidic guy walking down the street, I think, hey, and they don't think that about me. You know, I have a, a kind of emotional tendon that is connected to them. But um, – but I also think they're hilarious and ridiculous, and they're all all of these things. And the more that we can sort of laugh, I mean, you, uh, the point is, I'm a I'm a pretty proud Jew, but I'm also I also see the innate humor in in, in a lot of this stuff. So, what does contemporary Jewish museum mean to me? Uh, <laughs> is that did I answer that question that, in yeah, any way? I Not forgot. I forgot that there was a question. Right. Um, um, yeah. I mean, it's just it, we're defining it, so it's fun to ask people like, if you were to put on an exhibition of something that you think captures like what that means, because we don't know and we're trying to figure it out. Well, obviously, what I would do, because of who I am and my background, is that I would probably do an exhibition of Jewish comedians. That's you know, as the as Judaism becomes watered down and further uh, assimilated, I, I don't mean that as a, in a dirty you know, I know assimilation is sort of the dirty word of Judaism, but it's just. A kind of reality in America that you know you're either you're slowly slowly you're becoming it's either you're religious or you're unaffiliated. It, Jew, uh, American Jewish comedy is one thing that seems to be continue continues and is unadulterated. It's like it's a thing, and um, even though the voice has changed, and ladies and gentlemen, I'm no Lenny Bruce. It's still when I'm in a comedy club, I look around, and I think this is so weird. There's so many Jews here. There's basically black people, Jews, and Catholics in comedy. That's sort of that's sort of it. So, I'm intrigued by that. Hmm. That's what I would do. Yeah, what's that about? Why are Jews funny? Hmm. I think it's probably the same reason black people are funny because we've been you, you know marginalized and and weird weird weirded. Uh, you know, I don't want to say oppressed because I don't know how oppressed American Jews are, but and they're still very involved in the in the comedy world but I think it's it's um we like to argue obviously we like to make jokes I mean I'm struck when I go to like a a stuffy wasp house how different the, the tenor is you know um I'm always struck with that and I'm also struck when I go to a stranger's house for a Shabbat meal how um you know people are joking and they're arguing and it's just like an automatic thing so I think that there's something built into the Jewish kind of just like how you know learning is built into the Jewish sort of consciousness I think probably joking is too talk about California Jews a little bit. Um, we got this exhibition, California Dreaming, which is mm-hmm. about Bay Area Jewish history. Um, and one of the ideas behind the show is that um, the Bay Area is, for many people, a kind of a promised land of Jewish opportunity. 
um, you grew up here Jewish, but in Oakland. And um, so, I don't know, did the Bay Area seem like, or does it seem now like a promised land of Jewish opportunity? And how does that connect with you going back and forth between New York, between, yeah, between Seagate and Brooklyn, Hasidim, and Oakland public school system? Well, that's interesting. I always describe myself as being, I, I feel like I'm both more Jewish and less Jewish than pretty much everyone that I meet. You know what I mean? Hmm? Like, I have this unbelievably Jewish experience, which is these six weeks a year that I would be in Seagate, essentially, you know, uh, shucking and jiving in Seagate, like trying to pretend to be a Hasidic Jew. And then I would move back here where I, I would come back to California, but I didn't go to camp. I didn't know I didn't know Hebrew. I didn't have a, a, a big group of Jewish friends that I grew up with. I just, I had such a secular experience in Oakland and such an unbelievably non-secular experience in Brooklyn that it's like, I don't know if a person who grew up in the Bay Area who went to, you know, uh, Kahila or, you know, and then went to, what, what's the camp, the famous camp that people go to? Uh, camp Swig, Camp Newman. Yeah, I mean, Tawanga. I don't know if those Tawanga. people, Tawanga, right. I don't know if those <laughs> nice. people are, are more Jewish than, I feel like maybe they are more Jewish. I mean, I don't mean more, I mean, experientially more Jewish than me or not. What I have is a very, it's like, it's, it's like I was, a, I'm like a, a, a foie gras duck of the Jewish experience. So I'm, 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 a, I'm a regular duck, but I've got a big fatty liver. <laughs> uh, Are like we allowed that. to discuss foie gras in San Francisco? Or is okay. that, is it, no. You're still allowed to talk no, about it's okay. it, right? Yeah. Okay, a few cool. more weeks anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, you can't talk about it's gluten. Yeah, that's right. right yeah, right, I right. see these kids in my neighborhood. They're like, they're snorting gluten. Unbelievable. They're like, um, hey, kid, yeah. psst, first one's free. It's a pizza. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got hungry all of a sudden. I forgot my next question. <laughs> Somebody. Because you gave up gluten. I gave up gluten. I know. I'm, Did you really give up gluten? Um, I'm in the middle of a complicated food substitution I'm regime. A <laughs> I'm a Jew. My brother says, um, I'm not saying gluten intolerance is fake. I'm just saying everyone that has it voted for Obama. <laughs> I think is a good line. No, that's, that sounds about right. So we have another exhibition, Black Sabbath. Okay. The secret musical history of blacks and Jews. Um so it's about... It's, I just can imagine the copywriter up in his office like, Black Sabbath, I've got it! <laughs> we have had some confused Aussie fans, I yeah, think. Yeah. Uh, What's up? So. We're here for the Black Sabbath. <laughs> Jews? That's the worst! We've had, we've had some problems. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. It's this collaboration that, on the one hand, um, in certain musical circles and certain moments, was extremely, let's say, harmonious, if I could... Make it kind of a joke. But obviously in other situations, the black-Jewish relationship in America for the past two generations has been fraught with problems and complexities. And so um, your experience was probably unusual in terms of, you know, representative of the black-Jewish alliance. Sure. Um, Is that from Star Trek? Uh, black-Jewish alliance? No, but I want to no. talk about Star Trek, actually. I'm totally willing really? to do that. All right. Absolutely. <laughs> so blacks and Jews, um, what do you think? What's up with that? What's up with that? Yeah. Um, I, I I've always been very intrigued by the by the black Jewish. I mean, it's an old conversation, obviously, but um, I think I'm fascinated with, with. Well, I'm fascinated with the black Hebrews. Uh, do you know you know about them? The the kind of medieval people in New York who like literally dress in armor and go out onto the street. You've never seen these people? Oh, they're unbelievable. They're like they're literally they're black American New York Jews who have joined in like a kind of weird religious sect called the Black. Uh, I think they're the Black Hebrews. I know that there's a sect in Israel of 
black Hebrews, the black Hebrews that came from Chicago that moved to New York, I mean, to Israel. My favorite story about them is that they moved to Israel. They uh, had a self-discovery that they were, in fact, a lost tribe of Israel, and they were Jews. And so they moved to Israel before Israel really got its act together uh, immigration-wise. And so they're there, they're doing their thing, and then Israel came to them and was like, hey, probably, literally. Hey, guys. <laughs> um, and they were like, so you know, you can't just, like, move here. And they were like, you know, what do you mean? And they're like, well, we'll let you stay, but you have to convert to Judaism. And they were like, we're already Jewish. We, why would we convert? You're not even Jewish. That's part of the weird black Hebrew uh, mm. uh, re- religious. They're the true Jews. Uh, they're the true Jews. They've in the, some some strange thing that I don't understand. They're the true Jews. And the Israeli government was like, you gotta if, to stay here to be a citizen, you have to convert to Judaism, and we'll let you do that. And they were like, we're not going to convert to Judaism. We're already Jews. And then Israel was essentially just like, uh, all right, and just <laughs> now they live there. They're just Israelis <laughs> now. Like they just sort of capitulated to this like strange religion narrative, which I think is amazing. I love that. But in New York, there are these guys that they'll be standing on the street corner, and they'll, they're wearing armor. Like literally, they'll be wearing like armor, like maybe like a, 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 a Cohen Gadol kind of um, you know chest piece or whatever. And then they they break down like all the tribes of Israel. Uh, and this is the disturbing part. Like they're like we're one of the lost tribes, and, and the Latinos are a lost tribe, Asians are a lost tribe, and it, they break it down. Like this is Gad, and this is Danielle, and blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And then unfortunately, the Jews aren't Jews. I don't know why we didn't get to be uh... Jews. It seems unfair. I mean, we're the Jews. Why can't we be Jews? Tough break. We didn't make it. Is a tough break, um, but um, but obviously that's a little bit of an extreme and silly version of the Black Jewish experience. I'm I'm intrigued. I've always been intrigued by how uh, analogous um, the the Black Jewish experience was, especially uh, obviously slaves and uh, in civil rights times, and you know the, the borrowing of of religious uh, Jewish religious narrative motifs mm-hmm. into their own kind of. Ex- understanding of their own experience and it, uh, giving hope, and then, uh, and then I think it's also interesting that um, that it's that we don't have more that there's mis- the weird mistrust and there's a kind of and maybe it's because Jews are an other and a minority that looks white and has power, and I think maybe that is an in, a strange and mis- it seems like a, a thing not to trust. I don't know, but I w- I love black people. I'm, I'm go on record, love yeah. them. Love, don't fetishize them. Yeah. Just love them. <laughs> love them as regular people. Uh, actually, my podcast um, is because uh, I was a kid that grew up listening to nothing but hip hop in Oakland Public Schools, surrounded by black kids, and um, uh, that's my the, you know that's the soundtrack to my life is hip hop. And uh, my I, I do a podcast with the co-creator of the Chappelle Show, Neil mm-hmm. Brennan, who also has been working in black TV his whole life. That's his whole world. And DJ Doug Pound, who's a guy from the Tim and Eric program. Uh, who does like a DJ character as his stand-up persona. So we are all three these like white boys that are kind of enamored of black culture. And the conceit of the mm-hmm. podcast is that we only have black guests. Every week we have a different black guest celebrity. Uh, it's called The Champs. And as I say, if you are a white person and you want to hear what black people are like, please tune in. If you are a black person and you want to hear what white people are like when they timidly interview black people, please tune in. <laughs> if you are a non-white, non-black person, you are not welcome to listen to our podcast. I'm only kidding. Everybody's welcome. <laughs> uh, recent issue of Hebe Magazine or Hebe Online, you interviewed yourself. You mentioned that you're at home watching Deep Space Nine, which yeah. is one of the Star Trek spinoffs from you know the 90s. Perhaps um, the best one. I, I mean, think, the best spinoff, no doubt about it. The oh, best... there's, there's no question. There's yeah. no question. It's also the grittiest. It's for sure the grittiest. It's, it's, it's the dark. most like, um, it's the sci-fi as Western genre right. epitomized within the Star Trek ecology, I think. Ecology? Yeah. Whoa, man. It's, I mean... <laughs> You've been working on this bit for warp, warp, warp drive yeah. nerddom. 
Uh, no, I'm with you. I think yeah. it's, I, it's, it is. It's, and speaking of black people, Benjamin Sisko, the captain of the, right. the Defiant and Deep Space Nine, is in a very interesting and intriguing way, a, he was, he's a very, um, even though it's a post-racial future, that's mm-hmm. the, the conceit of the Federation in right. Star Trek, is that all racism has been abolished. He's a very uh, Afro, uh, Afrocentric character. He's got tons of African iconography in his office mm-hmm. and he has these flashbacks or a repeating motif in the in the in the show is that he has these flashbacks into strangely 1960s San Francisco mm-hmm. where he is a black Muslim science fiction writer and civil rights activist that is dealing with incredible racism uh, here in San Francisco. So it's like it's a kind of an intriguing connection mm-hmm. piece to blackness in a in a show where theoretically blackness shouldn't matter at all. See, it's interesting that I was uh, was drawn in terms of my racial analysis to the Ferengi. Oh, because you're a Jew. Because I'm a Jew. Yeah, the space, space Jews. The right, Ferengis the, the are space the space Jews. Jews. Right, yeah. these kind of like... I like money. Platinum. Right. Give it to me. Yeah. Exactly. Small and ugly and that it's whole cr- thing. It's crazy. And you've seen Harry Potter. Yes. The banker characters are these crook-nosed, like, wizened Jews. It's like... The, right, at Gringotts. Are we supposed to not notice this? I, I mean, these are Jews. I mean, this is just obvious. And Scrooge McDuck, too. I mean, right. swimming in money? Am don't I supposed get, to ignore that? Started. It's unbelievable. But so, so um, the, right. So what's interesting to me about that is that even today, um, these images percolate. I mean, they're still there. You um, literally believe that the Ferengis represent in at least someone's su- subconscious Jews. I don't know how else they would have been created uh, with that level of specificity. Mm-hmm. I think it is unconscious. In other right. So I'm thinking also of uh, um, the first of the new Star Wars movies, too, with uh, what's the name of that character who's like the... Oh, Jar Jar Binks? Jar Jar Binks. People said he was black. Black. Right. Right. It's an interesting thing. You start to, you know, I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, is there probably is racism within people's, you know, subconscious uh, wiring, you know? I'm sure that's true. And so I'm sure that, in, to, like, is Jar Jar Binks... Did George Lucas go? Oh, I'm going to make like a weird buffoonish black alien. Like no, but 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 Lucas is a is like a black guy. He's he's so involved in the black community. Right. He's got a black he, wife. Right. He, he did. He's a hero in the black community. Right. He just did. Uh, what was it? Red about the aviators. Yeah. The, right. So Lucas is Red a Tails hero. In, Red tails. That's right. Yeah. But I, it's interesting. Like you start to go, is this real or am I imagining it? And I don't know if you guys relate to this, but I've started to wonder if in fact my uh, hyper awareness of anti-Semitism. It, as older I get, am I just a paranoid Jew? Is this fake? Do I am I really just manifesting it, and it doesn't exist in the way that I think it does? Or are all of these Gentiles around me that because on the podcast we talk about that, Neil and and Doug, my co-hosts are always like I know, I hear Jews talking about anti-Semitism a lot, but the most of the anti-Semitic stuff I ever hear is from a Jew complaining about it. I never hear it in the world, and I always say I do hear it in the world. I see it. I, I, and then I go, and then I start to doubt myself. Is this real, or uh, are they right? I don't even know anymore. So ridiculous story about an incident that happened during our Gertrude Stein exhibition. Mm-hmm. So um, Gertrude Stein, five stories. It was kind of looking at her life and, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of highlighting the role that her partner, Alice B. Toklas, played in her life. And it was a big hit exhibition-wise. Um, and then this uh, incident happened where a contract guard um, saw a female lesbian couple holding hands in the gallery and said, we don't allow hand-holding in the gallery. No, we don't. And then... <laughs> Not with two ladies, for sure. 
in a, especially in a Gertrude Stein exhibition. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the phenomenal irony. So they complained. He was taken off say. the floor. <laughs> um, and uh, they were like, oh, no, absolutely, that's not our policy. Anyone's free to hold hands. Um, but the damage had been done, and um, it got picked up by the Chronicle. An article was published because that's just the best headline. Sure. I mean, in this right. Twitter world, right. lesbians kicked out of Jewish Museum <laughs> for holding hands in a Gertrude Stein exhibition. Right. Uh, so it was popping up everywhere, and there was just so much um, anger. Right. Of course, like intolerance is unacceptable. I was not prepared for the anti-Semitism that came up. It's not the anti-Semitism. It's mm-hmm. the imp- it's the impulse to go. Here's a thing that happened. I'm going to connect it to some greater narrative of Jewish grossness. Mm-hmm. That is, that's the intriguing thing to mm-hmm. me. Right. It's not somebody saying these stupid Jews wouldn't let these girls hold hands. It's mm-hmm. more this impulse, like it's like almost a seething kind of readiness for such a thing. And exactly. I, I don't think it's exclusive to Jews and anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. but it's certainly a part of what's going on here. The impulse to prejudice is like a human thing. It's it, it, a pattern-seeking um, kind think, of thing. I think that's right. And I think that um, it's so funny that we're talking about my book and we ended up talking about anti-Semitism. This is so Jewish. So your parents are deaf. Yeah. Both of them, your mother and your father. Um, and, and you described being an interpreter for the space between it's inevitably kind of an in-between position right um so yeah i thought that was fascinating and the fact that when you meet other um deaf people the fact that you have you know you come from deaf folks kind of puts you in a different class than people who just learn it i mean my life was lived in the space between and i think that that's a lot of that's a theme in the book is that though all of those spaces between were washed away when I got high that first time. You know, I, I say I wasn't, wasn't deaf enough. I wasn't hearing enough. I wasn't black enough. I wasn't white enough. I wasn't Jewish enough. I wasn't secular enough. I wasn't, you know, I was all of these things. And when I got high, all those things went away and I was enough enough. But I think, yeah, that is interesting. And later in life, I became a sign language interpreter. Um, before I was a, a stand-up comic, my job was a sign language interpreter. And before that, I dressed in a bear costume and I passed out flyers on Telegraph Avenue. So that, that's my entire <laughs> career arc. Bear costume, <laughs> interpreter, comedian. So it's basically bear costume, interpreter, bear costume again. Um, and in, one of the stranger assignments that I ever had was I got a call um, years into interpreting. I got a call to interpret at the very rehab that I had been a a patient at which I'm sure you guys read about and I went and I interpreted in this group and talk about the space between I was sitting there interpreting because as an interpreter you're this conduit you're not an active member you're just sitting there and you're passing information in and out of you and I'm sitting there like an observer looking around but they don't know what I know which is that I was here I sat here I was one of the people that you were talking about uh, and I just interpreted it was such a surreal experience to be in that and just be observing and to realize, oh, wow, these parents are as damaged as these kids. We never knew that. You know, we always thought we were the damaged goods. And then sitting in the parent group, I thinking, wow, these parents are a part of, uh, as big a part of the problem as anyone. And I was just sitting there in the space between. Moshe Kasher, thank you so much. Oh, thank my you. pleasure. Thank you guys for having me.